0: Read all of the first chapter of Ezra. Ezra 1 reads like this It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, And the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares beside all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to shesh Beazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400 All these did Shesh Bezar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Uh. Preacher and theologian R.C. Sproul was teaching an Old Testament class in university during his second year of teaching. The class was an entry Old Testament level class where every incoming student had to take it so there was about 250 students in the class. To make things easy on the students, Sproul decided that he, was going to get, that he was going to only give them three assignments for the whole of the semester, one at the end of September, end of October, and end of November. He told them to make sure that these assignments were turned in exactly at the due date, or they would fail the assignment. When the September due date came around, about 225 of the students had turned in their assignment. For the 25 that didn't turn it in, they asked Sproul for an extension on their work, asking to be given some grace. Sproul looked at them and decided that this one time he was going to be graceful towards them, giving them a break and giving them a three-day extension on their papers. But again, he warned them, do not do this again. When October rolled around, only 200 students had handed in their papers. For the 50 students that hadn't turned in their papers, they explained that they were busy with midterms and got lost in other classes doing assignments for those and were falling a bit behind. They looked at their professor and asked again for an extension. Sproul asked them very plainly, didn't I tell you to turn in your papers when I told you to? They looked at him and said that they remembered, but still asked for an extension anyway. Sproul gave them what they wanted, but then said very sternly, this is the last time I will give you an extension. Finally, the November date rolled around. This time, only 100 out of the 250 students had turned in their assignments. The students walked in all casual, cool, and collected, thinking that their professor was going to give them another extension. When they all sat down, Sproul grabbed out his grade book and started asking each student if they had turned in their paper. With each person who didn't have it, Sproul would simply say out loud, F, and write it in his grade book, failing them on their assignment. Out of the crowd, one of the students said to him, Professor, this isn't fair. Sproul looked at this young man and remembered that he had turned in his paper late last month in October. So Sproul said very plainly, if it's justice you want, justice you will receive, and announced that he was changing this man's grade to an F back in October. Sproul then looked up and asked if anybody else wanted justice, to which the room was silent. What we have here illustrated in this story is what happens when we think grace is owed to us. When we think about grace, we need to realize that grace, by definition, is something that we do not deserve. Grace, and especially grace from God, is given to us freely based on God's character alone and not ours. When we start to take grace for granted, it can be taken away away from us and we won't know what to do with ourselves. The nation of Israel is a shining example of what it means to take grace for granted. Although the Lord had done some incredible things throughout their history, they would constantly turn away from God and serve false idols. They would take the grace of God for granted and suffer the consequences of their actions when justice would be enacted by God. Then, after being punished, Israel would repent of their unrighteousness and turn to God. Tonight, we are going to see this series planned out as we look into the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra begins after Judah's punishment for serving other gods. Their punishment had ended because they realized the sweetness of God's grace and recognized his sovereignty once again. The Jews were in exile. And the book of Ezra picks up with the Jews returning home after 70 years in exile. So tonight, as we study Ezra 1, I want us to really see the bigger picture of what is happening here in the book of Ezra as well as what God is doing in the history of Israel So tonight, we will be studying Ezra 1 through the theme of covenants. So our two headings for tonight are simply this, the covenant broken and the covenant remembered. Through this all, our goal is to see that God is faithful to his promises. The challenge with jumping into an Old Testament book like Ezra is that there is a lot of context that we need to unpack to unpack, to fully understand what is happening in this book. For the original Jewish audience, Israel's history would come to them naturally because it was their own history. But for those of us who aren't as familiar with the entire history of Israel, we won't be able to understand these things in the same exact way, requiring us to do a little bit more digging if we are truly going to understand what is happening to to Israel in Ezra and how God is faithfully working through their history. When thinking about the Old Testament, I like to think back to what one of my Old Testament professors said to me at Moody about reading the Old Testament. He said, if you do not understand the context of something, it is likely pointing to one of two things. It is either pointing to Deuteronomy or to Jesus. So that's exactly what we are going to do tonight to understand what is happening to Israel and Ezra. This means that for our study tonight, we are primarily going to be focused on what's happening in Ezra chapter 1, but we will also be jumping around scripture a little bit to understand what is going on. So if you would like to follow along with me, keep your finger in Ezra chapter 1, but please also meet me in Deuteronomy chapter 29, where we will see our first heading for tonight, the covenant broken. So the entire book of Ezra begins with the returning of the Israelites from the Babylonian exile. If you're not super familiar with this history of Israel, it's like you're jumping into a TV show at season seven that you have never seen before. So to make sure that everyone is on the same page tonight, I want to recap everything that has happened in Israel real quick up until this point. So in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, we see the foundation laid for the nation of Israel. Abraham was given a promise by God that he would have a large number of descendants and that they would dwell in the land of Canaan. Following Abraham's family through Genesis, we see his grandson Jacob have 12 sons who will become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel and end up settling in Egypt while there's a famine in the land of Canaan. Their family settled there for four generations. When the new pharaoh of Egypt rose up, they enslaved the Israelites and put them to work there in Egypt. The second book of the Bible that we then have is Exodus, detailing God choosing Moses to free the Israelites from their captivity and bring them to the land that was promised to Abraham. After going back and forth with Pharaoh and ten plagues later, Israel was finally freed and started heading to the promised land. On their way there, Israel then disobeyed the commandments of the Lord to take the land from the people that they were given and were punished with 40 years of wandering in the desert. They had received instructions from God about the law, seen him dwell in his, bottle, in his presence in the tabernacle that they built, and even seen manna come down directly from heaven. Yet they still chose disobedience and were punished for it. So finally, we get to Deuteronomy chapter 29, Moses, the leader of Israel, is addressing the nation, renewing their covenant between God and the nation, seeking to give them clear instructions to how the nation is supposed to act as they prepare to enter into the promised land. Moses emphasizes here in verses 10 through 13 that everyone who is, enter- that everyone who is before them will be entering into this covenant, committing themselves to be the people of God. But not too long after, Moses then gives a warning to the people. Pick up with me in verse 18 of Deuteronomy 29. Moses says, Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of the sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against the man. They're that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. But what happens to this poisonous fruit when it becomes commonplace in Israel? Jump down with me to verse 24 where we will see the Lord will punish the land. Again, starting in verse 24, he says, all the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to the land? What caused the heat of this great anger? And people will say, It is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. We see right here in Deuteronomy the warning to all of Israel. If you serve other gods, then you will have no part In the God of heaven. And although this warning was written to the Israelites here clear as day, the path of Israel throughout the rest of their history up until Ezra really followed a downward trend. Israel would enter into the promised land after the 40 years of wandering. Yet their disobedience would begin right away. In Joshua, they failed to fully conquer the land that they were commanded to take. In Judges, they did what was right in their own eyes instead of obeying the law which they had been given. In 1 Samuel, they demanded for a king to rule over them instead of just giving glory alone to the God that was ruling over them. And then the unrighteousness doesn't stop there. It continues. King Saul was unrighteous. King David, the man after God's own heart, was unrighteous. King Solomon, the wisest man to have ever lived, still fell into sin and you guessed it, was unrighteous. Because of their unrighteousness, Israel would then split up into two kingdoms. Israel to the north with 10 tribes and then Judah to the south with two tribes. We then see in Kings and Chronicles the descent of the nations into more and more unrighteousness. Israel to the north was the first to go being invaded by the Assyrians and taken into exile in 722 BC, just as God had said when he renewed their covenant with them in Deuteronomy 29. While the southern kingdom wasn't as unrighteous as Israel was initially, they were still unrighteous nonetheless. And slowly they began to embrace their unrighteousness, just like the northern kingdom had and it's not like they were without warning either. The prophet Jeremiah warned Judah plainly what would happen to them if they continued to disobey. There's no need to turn to meet with me here, but listen to what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 11, verses 10 through 13. He says, they being Israel have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. They have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods who, to whom they make offerings, but they cannot save them in their time of trouble. For your gods have become as many as your cities, O Judah, and as many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars you have set up to shame, altars to make offerings to Baal. This is the context that we come to at the beginning of Ezra. Judah was thrown into exile because of their serving of other gods, just as the covenant had promised. Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians, led an attack on Judah and conquered the nation, pulling them into exile for the next 70 years. When we look at the entire history of Israel, and particularly the history of Israel leading up to the book of Ezra, we can see clearly that sin and unrighteousness have consequences. Even God's chosen people, the nation that was set apart so that they may know God, chose sin over choosing God and choosing to delight in his presence. And because of their sin, The land and their heritage that was so precious in their sight was taken away from them, sometimes even from their cold, dead fingers. And despite many warnings, despite many people telling them that they were going down a destructive path, they willingly went down the way of the fool. This then leaves us with a very big interpretive choice for how we are going to read Israel's history? Are we going to look at Israel and believe that we would have made better choices than them? Or are we going to look at Israel and realize that we would have made those very same choices? I assure you, my friends, that we would all fit into that second category, being enveloped by sin We transgress God's law and fall short of his standard of righteousness. Instead of turning to our God, we turn to gods of our own creation. Whether that be other false religions, whether we worship moralistic standards and push them in our culture, or even if we are simply just chasing after the coziest lifestyle we can think of. All of these things, all of these false gods, these idols, we place In the spot of God and worship them, whether we recognize it or not. And just like the Israelites had suffered consequences for their own sin, so do we if we are not put right before our God. If we stay relishing in our sin, when our time is up, we won't have time to stand before the throne and claim that we were eventually going to repent at any point in our lives the common grace that God extends to everyone regardless of their relationship with him can be taken away by the same God who gives it. At that point, our pursuit of false gods will be proven worthless as none of them will be able to save us. So then this leaves us with a pretty big warning that is displayed here in the history of Israel. There are consequences to breaking God's law so come before him in repentance and rely on him for grace and forgiveness. Then don't take that grace for granted as Israel did. As soon as they thought of grace as anything less than the greatest gift and privilege, it was taken away from them. Sin was creeping at the door and waiting for them to stumble. So we then need to look at the grace of God and properly evaluate it in our lives. Our salvation by Christ alone needs to change all of our lives and shape us into the people that God wants us to be. For the consequences of sin is great, but the gift of grace is even greater because grace is the sweetest thing to our own souls. Now let's now that we've have established the context, let's really look at see what God is doing in Ezra chapter 1. In the whole of chapter 1, we see clearly number 2 uh, our second heading, the covenant remembered. Read with me again the first 4 verses of Ezra chapter 1. It says, "In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled," And let him go up to Jerusalem, which, in Ju- which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Although Israel went off into exile because of their own sin. The Lord never forgot about his chosen people. After 70 years of being in exile, the Lord moved through the rulers of the age to bring his people back home. Again, this is exactly what was in line with what Moses told us back in Deuteronomy. Again, if you have your finger there, Deuteronomy 30 Verses 3 and 5, Moses is talking and saying that if they are to follow the Lord's God's laws again with all of their heart and soul, verses 3 through 5, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And the Lord your God will. Will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. You see, from the beginning of Judah's disobedience, there was still a plan of deliverance from the Lord. Again, thinking about Jeremiah the prophet who warned Judah that they were sinning and that they were going down a destructive path. He says in Jeremiah 25, 11, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And a couple of chapters later in 29:10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Now there are many skeptics who will look at this record of history and may think that this is all just happenstance, just a coincidence. But if you've ever gone to the British Museum in London, you might have come across the Cyrus Cylinder, which was an artifact discovered in 1879 with an inscription from Cyrus the Great, which allowed deported people to return home and build temples to their gods, similar to what we see here in Ezra chapter 1. But well, what is so incredible about Cyrus' edict is how truly perfect timing was compared to the 70-year prophecy given in Jeremiah. According to ancient records, Nebuchadnezzar would take over Judah in 607 BC, where we will see this biblical... If you, if you look at the previous page on your Bible, you see that at the end of 2 Chronicles chapter 36. It specifically measures that time away from the land in Sabbath rests. Ezra 1.1 then notes to us that this is the first year of Cyrus's reign. So the Persians then defeated the Babylonians in 539 B.C., meaning that the first year of Cyrus' reign was 538 B.C., It then would have taken the Jews uh, a couple of months to return to the land, most likely making their return to the land be 537 BC, being exactly 70 years from the beginning of the exile. This means that not only according to our biblical records do we see Judah was in exile for 70 years, but also according to extra biblical sources, we see this very same thing giving us confirmation that our God is the one sovereignly ruling over the whole of history. Ezra, who is most likely the author of this book, not only notes this in the historical context, giving us the year uh, which which everything was happening, but, and also referencing Jeremiah and the prophecy there, but he also recognizes God's sovereignty over all of history throughout his storytelling. The action that we will see multiple times throughout the book of Ezra is we will see that of God stirring up people's spirits. We see two examples of this happening in Ezra chapter 1. The first of which is Cyrus, king of Persia. Ezra records that, that although Cyrus was the one who made the decree that the Jews could return home, he attributes agency to the Lord himself, showing that God was the one who's truly behind this great work. You see, Cyrus at heart was a pagan, not knowing the God of the universe. He had no personal stake in letting the Jews return home other than social order in his new kingdom. But yet, his decisions were guided by the Lord so that God's people may be restored to their land and rebuild the temple for the glory of the Lord. The second stirring up that we see here by God is that we see God stir up the souls of the Jews who want to return to the land. And we see that in verse five. God stirs up the hearts of the people to desire to return to their home country where they can rebuild the temple once again. We even see God using the people around them to give them goods and materials for their prosperity in the land so that they can be settled and start rebuilding. The Jews were even given things that were plundered by Nebuchadnezzar, solidifying that God is over all of this again, because again, Deuteronomy 30 says, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. Ezra chapter 1, the whole of it really stands as a monument to the faithfulness of God throughout history. Our God did not make some prediction for the Jews and thinking they'd be put in exile and guessed a certain number of years thinking he would be right. Instead, he stood over the whole of history and directed every moment, every decision, and every outcome to make sure that his will was accomplished. When we look at this chapter of Scripture, We should feel an overwhelming sense of joy and celebration that the Jews would be feeling here because there would be no doubt in their mind that the Lord keeps his promises. There is no wavering commitment in the mind of our Lord. But when he wills and desires for something to happen, then we can be rest assured and trust wholly in his promises. So for then, us as modern readers who don't sit away right now in some far away land, exiled from our own country, hoping for deliverance from the nation that threw us into exile, we aren't like them. Instead, we sit here in a world of sin and wickedness, oftentimes partaking in these same wicked indulgences. While the Israelites looked for physical deliverance from this exile, We look for deliverance from our unrighteousness and from our sin. And the the deliverance that we look for has come. You see, God did not only remember his covenant that he made with Israel here in Deuteronomy, but he has remembered his other promises as well. He has remembered his promise to bring a Messiah and to save us from our sins and deliver us. You see, he sent to us the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, yet died a sinner's death, all so that we may be reunited to God and reconciled with Him. Through our union with Christ, we enter into a new covenant, a covenant that says that all who are in Jesus will surely be saved because of the new covenant. We are no longer forced to live in sin but can live freely in Christ where we will dwell with God and where our sin will be left behind because it has been taken from us. This new covenant, this promise of God for eternal life and our union with Christ is guaranteed. Just as we saw God's promises in action throughout Israel's history, We know that the same God will keep his promises in the very same way. We do not have to worry about whether we are worthy for salvation, but know that salvation comes to us through God's grace. Remember what we talked about at the beginning of this message, that grace is not dependent on your character, but is dependent on God's. And through Jesus He has offered this grace to us so that we may be saved. So when we are saved, when we put our faith in Jesus for salvation, when we repent of the sins that we have gathered up for ourselves, we know that salvation is then ours. Our sin can no longer bind us because we have been set free in Christ. So church, Do not be afraid of our God abandoning you. You no longer have to sit alone worrying about the states of your own soul. For if you are in Jesus, then you will be saved. Our God remembers his promises and he will bring to fruition all that he has promised to his people. Amen. Let's pray.